We're going to read from the Bible together now, and our Bible reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're reading verses 12 to 20 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you're using one of our blue pew Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 991, page 991, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Last week, we started a series on this New Testament letter, and we're continuing that series this morning. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter, verse 20. And as we read, we remember that this is God's word to us. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Uh, You'll find that passage on page 991 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, We're continuing this series that we started last week on 1 Timothy. And as always, you'll find it helpful to have your Bible open in front of you so that you can see that what I'm saying comes from the Bible itself. Uh, Page 991 of the Pew Bibles uh, for 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Fritz Sockel, Wilhelm Keitel, Hermann Goring, Alfred Rosenberg, Wilhelm Frick, and Joachim von Ribbentrop. Between them, they were responsible for the deaths of thousands, if not millions, during World War II. They can be rightly considered as the worst of the worst, the worst sinners who had ever lived. All six men were tried at Nuremberg for plotting and carrying out invasions of other countries and other crimes in World War II. All six men were tried and found guilty by the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg and were sentenced to death by hanging. All six men were pastored by Henry F. Gerica. Gerica was a Lutheran minister who worked as a pastor, evangelist, prison chaplain, and US Army hospital chaplain. He was involved in army army chaplaincy during World War II And the commandant of Nuremberg Prison specifically asked for him to help with prisoners and staff at the Nuremberg trials. One person has said that Gerica was a minister to monsters. 
Four of the six men Garica pastored came to Christ before their death. Two didn't, not that we know of anyway. Hermann Göring was the highest ranking Nazi official tried at Nuremberg. Garica told him, surrender your heart to the Savior. Göring replied, I can't do that. This Jesus you always speak of, to me he's just another smart Jew. And he later committed suicide in his cell. Alfred Rosenberg was head of the Nazi party's foreign affairs department. In 1940, he established an organization whose mission was to loot and confiscate cultural treasures from all over Europe and bring them to Germany. Gerke tried to pastor him, but Rosenberg said, if my colleagues are naive enough to accept counseling, you go ahead and work with them, but don't bother me. Sockel, Keitel, Frick, and von Ribbentrop were different though all received communion before they were hanged. Wilhelm Keitel, who was Hitler's closest military advisor, told Gerica, you have helped me more than you know. May Christ, my saviour, stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. Fritz Sockel, Wilhelm Keitel, Hermann Göring, Alfred Rosenberg, Wilhelm Frick, Joachim von Ribbentrop the worst of the worst, the worst sinners who have ever lived. Or are they? Because history gives us quite a few options. Dictators, serial killers, human traffickers, sexual predators. Modern life in the United Kingdom in 2022 gives us plenty of options as well. Who would you say is the worst sinner of all time? The worst of the worst, the most awful person who has ever lived. Interestingly, the Bible gives us a suggestion. It's not someone we might expect. The person identified as the worst sinner ever is someone who was used by God to essentially start the church, to start the thing that you and I are at this morning. He was used to spread the news about Jesus throughout the world. To be fair, this person does identify himself as the worst sinner in history, But his self-identification isn't changed or softened in the scriptures. It's not that this person said this of himself and it wasn't recorded. It's recorded plainly for us in 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The author of that saying is none other than the great apostle Paul. He says that he is the worst sinner of all time. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the leading sinner. I am the principal sinner. I'm the most notable sinner. I'm the most noteworthy sinner. I'm the main sinner. I'm the number one sinner. Not Fritz Sockel, not Wilhelm Keitel, not Hermann Göring, not Alfred Rosenberg, not Wilhelm Frick, not Joachim von Ribbentrop. I, the Apostle Paul, am the worst of the worst the worst sinner who has ever lived. But Paul starts 1 Timothy by talking about the truth. In verses 1 to 11, he tells Timothy that only the truth advances God's work, only the truth shows us how to live, and only the truth reaches out to the world. In verses 12 to 20, he moves to explain the truth, the gospel, in more depth. And what we have in front of us this morning is one of the greatest gospel texts in all of Scripture. It's a kind providence that we've landed on this passage for our communion Sunday. 
because this morning we're, we're going to explore what it means to know God, what it means for God to have saved us. In these verses, Paul speaks really personally of his situation and experience. And as he does that, we can step into his shoes and think about our situation and experience as well. Because actually, while Paul may confess to being the worst sinner who has ever lived, we can make the same confession as well. You know your own heart. You know yourself better than you think. You're aware of the things that you've done. You remember the things you've said. You're conscious of of all that runs through your mind. And you know that you wouldn't want anyone to sit down and, and leaf through or watch back all of the things that you've ever thought, said, or done. You're prepared to admit to a certain degree that there isn't quite a sinner as bad as you. John Stott says that that is actually the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. As we look at this passage together, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that along with Paul, we are hopelessly lost, that we have been incredibly loved, and that we should be eternally grateful. Hopelessly lost. That's our first point or phrase. That the Apostle Paul was hopelessly lost before he came to know Jesus. He says as much in this passage. Look at verse 13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul gives us his personal history in this verse. He admits who he was, a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul, and he hunted down Christians in order to destroy the church. He was a brutal man. Listen to how Luke describes him in Acts 9. He says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul preyed on those belonging to the way, the followers of Jesus, the the, the followers of the person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Saul's goal in life was nothing short of the complete extermination of Christians. If you've ever watched Doctor Who, you'll know that the doctor's greatest enemies are the Daleks. Anytime they see the doctor, they scream, exterminate. We're supposed to imagine that Saul said something similar when he saw Christians. Luke's description of Saul breathing threats and murder is so vivid. This man was was a frightening and violent enemy. Later in Acts, Paul tells Agrippa some of the things that he did to Christians. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. His violence and aggression towards Christians started in Jerusalem but reached well beyond it. Saul asked the Sanhedrin if he could go to Damascus, which was about a week's travel away, to hunt Christians there. He was duly dispatched. Saul the hunter, Saul the man of blood, Saul the blasphemer, the persecutor, the insolent opponent. We know what happened to him on the Damascus road, of course. We're going to come to that in a moment. But what we're supposed to understand from 1 Timothy 1 is that Paul was hopelessly lost. He was outside of Christ And he was living in direct opposition to the Savior. There was surely a sense among those early Christian believers who were experiencing his wrath that the church would not survive because of him. He was hopelessly lost. Humanly speaking, 
There was no hope for someone as malicious and as aggressive as he was. Do you know, we can so easily step into his shoes and see our situation from that perspective as well. Before we were Christians, before we we came to know Jesus, we, we were hopelessly lost. There was no hope for us in that, although we probably didn't persecute Christians in the way that Paul did, we were still cold towards Christ. We, we were still bent against him. Well, when I was growing up at home with my brother, one of his favorite toys were his Action Man figurines. Uh, some of you might remember Action Man. He was the toy of the 90s, if you grew up in the 90s. I didn't love Action Man as much as Philip did, and I kept him going by telling him that they were really just dolls for boys, which is true. On Action Man adverts, though, there was a tagline, Action Man, the greatest hero of them all. We can adapt that tagline, put our own names in there, and say, Stephen Kennedy, the greatest sinner of them all. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. It's what he explains as he tells his personal history. It's the healthy thinking of a regenerate heart. A realization that before you came to know Christ, you were hopelessly lost. But a healthy, regenerate heart will also lead you to realize that you are incredibly loved. Paul talks in such a beautiful way about Jesus in these verses. And our second point is that we are incredibly loved. Hopelessly lost, incredibly loved. Do you know, talking about how much Jesus loves us is, is something that we don't do enough. We, we talk about Jesus, we mention him every Sunday, but we don't really look into his character or his heart. L- listen to what Paul says about the Lord in verses 13, 14, and 16. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What's your favorite sandwich filling? Weird question. What's your favorite sandwich filling? The classic ham and cheese, the not very often chicken or beef, egg and a little bit of salad, There's a sandwich in verses 13 to 16. Now, it's not the kind of sandwich that we can eat. It's a spiritual sandwich. It's a mercy, grace, mercy sandwich. Did you notice how Paul says, I received mercy twice in the verses that we just read? Verse uh, verse 13 and verse 16, I received mercy. And in between that, the, the, the filling, if you like, he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Mercy, grace, mercy. As we chew on that spiritual sandwich, we're supposed to feel completely satisfied. We're supposed to realize that we're incredibly loved. The filling in particular should give us a sense of delight. The the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The the words suggest an overflowing supply of grace. That phrase is the phrase that John Bunyan used for the title of his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. An artist once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls to an exhibition, but didn't give it a title. The gallery came up with the playful words, more to follow. Niagara Falls, which has been, has been spilling over billions of gallons per year for thousands of years, is a great picture for the floods of God's grace. There's always more to follow. As James puts it, he gives more grace. 
And it's not that we're exaggerating things either. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God's grace is beautiful because, because hearts like Paul's and hearts like ours that were previously filled with unbelief are now filled with faith. Hearts that were once filled with hatred are now filled with love. If we have come to know Jesus, we are incredibly loved. We don't talk enough about how much Jesus loves us. We don't talk enough about how, how patient Jesus is with us. Paul says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Well, what Paul is saying there is that his conversion was a prototype of all subsequent conversions. His conversion had a, had a number of unique features, the, the heavenly light, the audible voice, the Hebrew language, Paul's fall and blindness. But it was a prototype in that it was Jesus showing infinite patience. The patience that Jesus had with Paul is the same patience that he has with us. What makes you impatient? Standing in a queue that isn't moving, making a phone call and then being put on hold. It doesn't take much for our patience to snap. But Jesus, well, he's infinitely patient. He's perfectly patient. The conversion of Paul proves that. Paul, an, an untamable tiger, met the lion of the tribe of Judah on the Damascus road and experienced overflowing grace. Having been hopelessly lost, he came to trust the Lord and know that he was incredibly loved. Again, it's so easy to step into Paul's shoes. We were hopelessly lost, now we're incredibly loved. We have a seat at our Savior's table. We don't talk enough about how much Jesus loves us. Hopelessly lost, incredibly loved, eternally grateful. That's our final phrase and point this morning. The beginning and the end of this section is marked by thankfulness on Paul's part. So look at verse 12, first of all. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul is eternally grateful for three things here. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. He's referring to the inner strength given to him by Christ. I thank him because he judged me faithful. This doesn't mean that Jesus trusted him because he thought that Paul was trustworthy. Paul's faithfulness came from the strength given to him by the Lord. And then I thank him for appointing me to his service. Here he's grateful for God's call on his life to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Strength, faithfulness, appointment to service. Paul is eternally grateful that God has worked in his life. And this gratefulness, this, this thankfulness, causes him to burst out in doxology in verse 17. But back in verse 11, Paul mentions the, the gospel of the, of the glory of the blessed God. In verses 12 to 16, he tells us about what he's like, about how Jesus is merciful and gracious and patient. And all of that leads him to say these words. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a richness to this verse, a richness that we don't have time to unpack in detail, but a richness that we can't overlook. Paul's eternal gratefulness causes him to praise God for being eternal, the king of the ages. He is beyond the fluctuations of time. He praises God for being immortal. He's beyond the, the, the ravages of decay. He says that God is invisible. He's beyond the limits of every horizon. And he finishes by saying that God is the only God. God has no rivals. 
And Paul, who was hopelessly lost, yet incredibly loved, is eternally grateful for those truths, for who God is, for what God has done. The leading sinner, the principal sinner, the most notable sinner, the main sinner, the number one sinner, is eternally grateful for the overflowing grace provided by Jesus Christ. And yet, we know our hearts and know that there isn't a sinner quite as bad as us. But we also know how great Jesus is. John Newton knew of both of those things too. He was the slave trader who was dramatically and gloriously converted to Christ. He wrote Amazing Grace, which we sang at pre-communion on Wednesday. On his deathbed, Newton said these memorable words. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come with those words ringing in our hearts and reverberating around our minds. We are great sinners. We don't deserve to be here. But Jesus is a great saviour. As we meet around the Lord's table this morning, we come realising that we were hopelessly lost. We come knowing that we're incredibly loved. And we surely come as those who are eternally grateful. There was one other anecdote about the minister to monsters that I didn't mention. Joachim von Ribbentrop was foreign minister of Germany between 1938 and 1945. He played a key role in negotiating the German-Soviet non-aggression pact that made the German invasion of Poland possible, and it was the invasion of Poland in 1939 that sparked World War II. Von Ribbentrop had another job, though. He directed diplomatic efforts to, pers to, to persuade Germany's allies to deport their Jews to German killing centres and to abandon their Jewish citizens living in Germany to the deportations. Put more simply, he moved Jews from other countries to Germany so they could be sent to places like Auschwitz, Dachau and Treblinka. And he kept Jews from other countries in Germany so they could be sent to those same places. The worst of the worst. He was captured after the war ended and was put on trial at Nuremberg. He was found guilty and sentenced to death, but he was pastored by Henry Gericke. After von Ribbentrop was executed, the commandant who specifically asked for Gericke recalled his last words. Immediately before the hood was placed over von Ribbentrop's head, he spoke to Gericke and said, I'll see you again. Hopelessly lost, incredibly loved, eternally grateful. I'll see you again. Eternally grateful in that despite his lostness, despite his crimes, despite the evil that had manifested itself in his political decisions, von Ribbentrop went into eternity having experienced the incredible love of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The worst of the worst, the worst sinner of them all. But actually, there's competition for that position, isn't there? Because you and I know that we're not perfect. In fact, we're far from it. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come putting our own names into Paul's trustworthy saying. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, Stephen Kennedy, 
am the foremost. And yet we come remembering that although our sin is great, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we can ever imagine. We bow in worship at the wonder of it all, that Jesus would love such hopeless rebels like us, that Jesus would be patient and kind to those who least deserve it, that Jesus would come into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Hopelessly lost, without Christ we're dead in our sins. Is that where you remain this morning? If that's the case, you need to turn to him. Incredibly loved, the grace of God has, has overflowed to us. Eternally grateful, eternally grateful. And one day we'll see Jesus and we'll be able to thank him face to face. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that it has reminded us of our situation when we were outside of Christ, that we were sinners who needed to be rescued, that we were rebels who were guilty of spiritual treason. But yet as we bow our hearts in prayer and in worship, we come in awe because you are the God who has rescued and saved us. You have come into our world and have rescued us and brought us to yourself. We are incredibly loved. And as we consider your incredible love for us, so we are eternally grateful. And Father, as we approach your table shortly, we pray that we would have gratitude in our hearts for how you've saved us and brought us to yourself. We pray that you would continue with us this morning and we pray in our Saviour's name. Amen.